Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading is taken from Nehemiah 6, verses 1 to 15, which can be found on page 488 of the Church Bibles. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Gesh and the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his assistant to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, According to these reports, you're about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work, but it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day, I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deleah, the son of Mehatabal, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah, and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's very nice to see you. Thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, briefly, I don't think it's raining. It'll probably be raining by the time I finish this morning. Well, it, uh, it really is lovely to see you. And let me just add my welcome to that of Matt's from earlier, uh, particularly if, you are, if you're visiting us and uh, or this is uh, your first time amongst us, maybe you're new. You know, we'd love to have the opportunity to get to know you, to, to welcome you into our church family, to tell you how much we love our church family and to invite you to be part of this. And uh, so please don't rush off. There'll be tea, coffee served at the back and do stay around and uh, make yourself known to folks, please. Well, before we look at God's word, would you join me for a short prayer? 
Lord, we are conscious again that we are, we are coming to your word. And so we pray that you would give us ears to hear and soft hearts to receive the truth. In your name, amen. All their life in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Familiar words, I'm sure, to all of us from The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis that expresses something of the joy of the next life. And it captures something of what Paul meant when he said, For to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Now we have set aside this time, this time, this month, to meditate and to pray on what it is to know more of Christ. And part of that is to recognize that life is a battle. It's why we need to remember our ultimate destiny. And one thing that has clearly emerged from the book of Nehemiah is that life is a battle from beginning to end. Nehemiah ran into opposition the moment he set himself to obey God's commands to rebuild the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. He faced difficulty before he had even got to the city. And then after he reached Jerusalem, enemies rose up to oppose everything that he did. Now, we may not yet have experienced all that in Christian life, but I imagine we've encountered quite a lot of it. And in Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul warns us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's really not against other humans, but against the invisible powers of darkness. And these same enemies are at work in the book of Nehemiah. Now, the reality is that we, you and me, are confronted daily by an invisible enemy who loves to mangle and destroy the work of God. And that is what we are battling, and that is what Nehemiah is battling. See, here in Nehemiah, as in many other places in the Bible, we learn that the devil has two main ways of working. First, the devil comes, as Peter says, like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He comes aggressively. That is one way the enemy works. The other way, as we will see, is through flattery. Now, if you were with us uh, last week, you remember in Nehemiah chapter 5, we learned about grace teaching our hearts to fear, that reverent fear of God. So, if chapter 5 is about God's grace teaching our hearts to fear, then borrowing from John Newton's famous hymn, chapter 6, is about having our, our fears relieved by God's grace. See, chapter 6 begins, we see there in verse 1, with the reappearance of what one commentator called an unholy trinity, Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem. And they're up to their normal program of intimidating Nehemiah, attempting to make him fear. And I want us to notice that this is the emphasis in our chapter. It's an emphasis on fear. 
We see this in verse 9. Nehemiah says, they were all trying to frighten us. Then in verse 10, he said, a false prophet was hired to make him afraid that someone was coming to kill him. And then further down, verse 13, for this purpose he was hired that I should be intimidated. Verse 14, Nehemiah prays and asks God to remember these people, Tobias and Balat and these prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. We see here fear tactics that the enemy is using against Nehemiah. Now we see also there in verse 1 that the walls of Jerusalem have been nearly completed. Only the gates remained. And so the work is almost finished. But still, with just a little work left, Satan, through these three men, he aims to make Nehemiah afraid. And it's not so to, to bring him down, to bring the work to an end. And, and this morning, it, it's not so much that we are introducing a new layer of, of opposition as much as we're seeing just how relentless the assaults of the enemy are. We're considering things together that we've seen throughout the story so far, but amazingly we'll see that Nehemiah's fears are relieved by grace. So let's consider first then the relentless nature of the assault. And we see Nehemiah dealing with unremitting opposition, and we'll observe the attack comes in three waves. The first wave is in verses 1 to 4, where we observe the sheer doggedness of the attack. The enemy, you see, seeks to, to wear Nehemiah down with the persistence of the opposition. And I want you to notice that this attack begins not with fear, but with flattery. Now, the Bible tells us that the devil has another capacity for attacking us other than through fear. He does it through flattery. He comes in the guise of an angel of light, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He comes with smiling, gracious accommodation, enticing promises, and flattering words. Assuring us that what he proposes will cost us nothing. And it gives us the affirmation that we need and speaks into our insecurities, making us feel better. And what we see there in verse 1 is that Sambalat and gang hear that the walls are nearly finished. You see, they fear what is apparent to them, that God is at work, that God is at work rebuilding and restoring his people that they thought were just a rubble and dispersed, and of no consequence. Fifty-two days of construction, and all of a sudden there are walls that weren't there before. As one commentator put it, the work has now reached that crucial stage, this critical point on the very brink of completion, at which all could still be lost or soon be won. See, these open gates were the enemy's last hope. And so they want to distract the work. They want to disrupt it. And so in verse 2, they come up with a plan to, to minimize the threat. Nehemiah. Or to get rid of the threat. 
They come up with a scheme of flattery, with smiling, flattering words, verse 2. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Now, these erstwhile enemies suddenly become Nehemiah's friends and invite him to a peace summit. But Nehemiah sees through all of that. You see that at the end of verse 2. He sees that their plan is not really to have this great gathering, but their plan is to neutralize him. He says they were scheming to harm me. Some commentators suggest that they were trying to tempt him, to trick him into leaving Jerusalem where he had an armed support. They were trying to persuade him to, to leave there and to come out into the plain, as it were, where perhaps they might kill him. And Nehemiah evidently senses this, and he firmly declines, saying, verse 3, I am carrying on a great project, and I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Now, that is a great answer. On the surface, it may seem to us a surly response to their invitation to meet together. It sounds, doesn't it, sort of brusque and, and blunt. But Nehemiah sees, you see, through their scheme and refuses to go along, even though they pressure him four times. Verse 4. Now, we too may experience continuing pressure to change our mind and go along with something that is wrong. In recent times, you know, we may have been tempted to take on something that we know, that promotion, that friendship, that club, that we know could be fatal for our faith. And many have fallen after a proper refusal simply because they gave in to repeated pressure. But Nehemiah persists in his refusal. And here is the reason. I am doing a great work, he says. I have a great calling, and if I leave, that work will be threatened. See, Nehemiah knows that he is involved in a great project. This is a part of what God is doing in the history of redemption to assure his promise that Jesus Christ will come and save sinners. This restoration of the people of Israel was a promise that God made, a part of the promise that eventually will lead to a king coming to them whose name is Jesus Christ. Do we know that this is the great work? That Jesus has come to save sinners and build his church? Do we believe this? Do we believe that this is the greatest work? You know, I think it's, it's very easy in the busyness of our lives to so easily get sidetracked. To waver between the work of building our own kingdom and building the work of God's kingdom. Now, when was the last time that we thought, I am involved in a great work? You know, this work that is more important than the work for money and the work for ease, the work for promotion, the work for approval. But this is the most important work of my life. You know, do we believe that? Do we believe 
we are involved in the greatest work under heaven? Is this how we interpret our story? It's easy, week after week and day after day, to forget this in the humdrum, day in, day out, relentlessness of life. It's easy to forget that in the smallness and in the sameness that God is doing this great work. And it may have been in the last year or two that we have been tempted to forget this. Tempted to give up the great work and go down and join the world. I ran across a great word along these lines this week. And let me, let me read them to you. O children of the great King, let us pray that we may know the grandeur of our position before Him, the high calling with which we have been called, the vast responsibilities with which we are entrusted, the great work of cooperating with God in erecting the city of God, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, called to sit with Christ in the heavenlies, risen, ascended, crowned in Him, sitting with Christ far above all principality and power. How can we go down? down to the world that rejected him, down to the level of the first Adam from which at so great cost we have been raised, down to the quarry from which we were honed and the hole of the pit whence we were digged. No, it cannot be. And when the enemy cannot accomplish his purpose by offering peace and friendliness, he switches back to his original tactic of threats and danger. And the second wave of relentless assault is in verses 5 to 9. So let's notice the defamation of the attack. See, here we see the slander of the opposition. See, after those four attempts to get Nehemiah to come down to Ono, the next time, look at verse 5. We read that Sambalat sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. Now, I want you to notice that it was an, an unsealed letter. In other words, it was designed for everybody involved in delivering it to read it. You know, they were to, to take a, a little peek and spread around the lie that Nehemiah was trying to make himself a king. Take a look at the letter there. We have it in verse 6. It is reported among the nations that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become king. Now, that was a, a complete fabrication. Nehemiah wasn't attempting a coup. He wasn't attempting to be king. He's working at the king's commands, at Artaxerxes' commands, at the king's commission. Now, I do think, just in terms of context, we do need to remember back in Ezra chapter 4, that's about 15 years prior, King Artaxerxes, you might remember, shut down all of the rebuilding in view of that kind of gossip. And so the purpose of the slander here is similar. Verse 9, you see, they want to frighten the people, so they lose their strength of motivation to finish the job. And Nehemiah there in verse 8 responds with the truth. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. It's almost comical. You know, that's, that's a way to respond to, to such a, a charge, just a flat denial. There's no attempt here to disprove their accusation. He merely states that is a lie. 
There is absolutely no truth in it whatsoever. I think there's a lesson here, however, for us. You know, Satan loves to slander and accuse God's people. He's very clever, you know. He will resurrect sins from our past. Sins that have been forgiven. He will bring them back to our minds and use them to frighten us that we'll do it again. You know, the really sad thing, however, is that not only does Satan slander us, but sometimes he even causes people in the church to speak ill of one another or not treat one another with kindness in a Christ-glorifying way. And that is a great victory for the enemy. You know, this may have happened to us, and it has left us hurt and wary of other Christians, so much so that it's honestly a miracle that I am even in a church, that we're here worshipping this morning because our motivation to finish the race has suffered. You know, when I think of my grandfather, of the uh, childhood memories that I have with him, I remember two things about him. I remember the way that he always spoke so kindly of everyone. And also, I remember his smell. Now, I've been thinking about it this, this week, and, and, and looking back, I think it was a combination of, of aftershave and a sort of meaty bacon smell because he was a butcher. <laughs> I know, pretty weird, but it sort of worked on him. And I remember the aroma in the room when he would leave of that distinct smell. He would walk out and there was a kind of after-presence of him, of kindness. I wonder what lingers in the air when we leave a room. What kind of atmosphere, what kind of aroma is in the room? The enemy's tactics were to get the people to think that Nehemiah, you see, had some hidden motive, his own glory, for rebuilding the wall, hoping that the workers would thus become so discouraged that they would stop working. And Nehemiah, you'll see his response. He simply prays for strength in the face of that false accusation, verse 9. So the enemy, however, hasn't finished. He switches tactics, and he reverts again to subterfuge. So we've seen then the doggedness. We've seen the defamation. The third wave is in verses 10 to 13, and we see the deviousness here of the opposition. And you notice there in, in verse 12 how devious Tobiah and Sambalatar, they've even got, they've gone out and they've hired this prophet, Shemaiah, who falsely he leads Nehemiah to think that his life was in imminent danger. And so Shemaiah encourages Nehemiah to flee. And not only to flee, but he encourages Nehemiah to run into the holy place of the temple. So verse 10, he said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. But Nehemiah knows that he is not in the priestly line. And so for going into the Holy of Holies, he would have been guilty of breaking God's law. And his response there in verse 11 with remarkable humility. Should someone like me go into the temple even to save his life? 
Now, as we saw last week, Nehemiah was a man who feared God more than he feared man. He had a true sense of the fear of God. You see, the Lord was the central, dominant, controlling reality in all of his human experience. He got it. He sought to live a life orientated to his God. The poet uh, John Donne, at the end of his life, wrote these words, Give me, O Lord, a fear of which I may not be afraid. And Donne was saying, we, we will all have fear. But we have a choice. We can either fear God, or we can fear everyone and everything else. And we see this with Nehemiah. Nehemiah knew the fear of God, and it made him like a lion on the inside. It made him like a lion because he's not afraid of people anymore. Should a man like me run away? Nehemiah has the heart of a lion on the inside with a humble posture on the outside. See, this wave after wave of attack was all part of the enemy's plan to discourage Nehemiah. And in the New Testament, Satan uses the same tactics of relentless opposition against one far greater and far more faithful than even Nehemiah. For Nehemiah, you see, is actually just a little picture. His courage is a picture of Jesus Christ who will be even more faithful in his battle with the enemy. Nehemiah is the shadow. Christ is the reality. Now, we must be aware of these kinds of attack. These kinds of attack that come in our everyday lives. You know, there's nothing that Satan loves more than for us here in the West to underestimate him, to underestimate him and to not take him seriously. And Jesus resisted Satan through a deep sense of who he was. He was the Son of God. Nehemiah did the same. He resisted through a self-conscious awareness that he was a believer in the Lord. And this is exactly what the New Testament tells us to do, calls us to do. Writing to the Thessalonians, faced with the normal pressures and problems of life, the Apostle Paul's word to them is, walk worthy of God. We are called to walk with God. We are a child of His. We belong to Him. We are therefore living at a different level than those around us. Henry David Thoreau wrote, in Walden Pond, if I seem not to keep step with others, it's because I'm listening to another drumbeat. As Christians, we listen to another drumbeat. We follow the Lord, not the voices we hear around us. And nothing will free us more from the subtle pressures and temptations of today than to remember who we are. So this was Nehemiah's wise response. He's under an awful lot of pressure. But how was he able to so instinctively respond like this? What was it that gave him that steadiness, that strength, that wisdom in times of trouble? And of course, we know the answer. He was a person of prayer. So we've seen then the relentless assault towards Nehemiah. I'd like us to notice very briefly... Nehemiah's unrelenting prayer. Now look, it's been absolutely fantastic for us to pray together 
Let me say that. I know many of us are hugely encouraged. And the good news, this has been but week one. Don't miss out. Please come and join us on these Zoom calls or in the morning here in the church at 7.30 a.m. Now, prayer is one of those practices that keeps in front of us that God is big and that God is good and that we are utterly dependent on him. And Nehemiah has encouraged us over, actually, these past months to pray. And we've seen repeatedly that he is a man of God. He's a man of prayer. He's committed to, to lengthy times of prayer, but also in a crisis, in a chaos. He cries out to the Lord with an arrow prayer. And we have uh, one of those in verse 9 and one in verse 14. Verse 9 we read, But I pray, now strengthen my hands. Come to my help, Lord. I can't manage in my own strength. See, here in the thick of it all, Nehemiah casts himself upon God's strength. Strengthen my hands. There's an acknowledgement here in Nehemiah of weakness. And I imagine that when we think of Nehemiah, you know, we don't think of a man who is weak. But you see, that is to misunderstand Nehemiah. It's also to misunderstand what is actually going on here. You know, we are so blessed when we come to God with empty hands, with weak hands. You know, blessed are we when we have nothing to bring to him but our empty and weak hands who possess absolutely nothing but our own weakness and poverty. When we come in a moment to the communion table, conscious of our sinfulness. And that teaches us, knowing our lack of strength, teaches us not only to depend on our own strength, not to depend on our own strength, and our own stubborn self-sufficiency, but it teaches us to sing, The Lord is my strength. Whom shall I fear? It gives us a line of defense in the spiritual battle. Now, I imagine that many of us have watched The Crown, and in one episode, I think it's season four, there's a scene where Princess Margaret is suffering a spiral uh, of despair. She's on her way to her first appointment with, uh, with a doctor, and Margaret's friend is driving, and Princess Margaret can't believe that she, the princess, has to drive to see the doctor instead of the doctor coming to see her. And more than that, Margaret, she's railing against the need to see a doctor at all. She's railing against her sorrows and rails of her, that her grand life has not worked out as she hoped. And this friend that was driving her is, uh, she's driving her through the fog and, and says to Princess Margaret this amazing line. Apparently, the healing cannot start until the grandiosity is diminished. Now, we can be, can't we, so proud? I'll bet none of us would just come out and say, you know, I know better than God. Oh, God's wrong and I'm right. You know, we recognize, don't we, that that's arrogance. It's inaccurate and quite honestly, it's foolhardy. But far too often, we act like that's what we think, even when we're not saying or even consciously thinking those words. You know, how many times, even, I suggest, this week, have we come up with reasons why we don't have to keep his commands or decide that we have a better idea for how to obey what is instructed in Scripture? See, we know best. We try to figure out what being a Christian means to us rather than seeking what it means to God. The Lord Jesus, in order to be the vehicle through whom God would fulfill our redemption, had to face something not dissimilar to what Nehemiah had to face. Come down and meet with us in the plains, said Nehemiah's enemies. And the crowd jeered, at Christ, 
and they spat upon him and mocked him as he hung upon that cross. If you are the Son of God, come down, they said. We hear there uh, the echo of Nehemiah's words, I cannot come down, I am doing a great work. And what a work. If Jesus had come down, there would not have been salvation for one single person. And the whole world would have been plunged into eternal hell. If Jesus had come down, Satan would still roam on this earth, an undefeated enemy. You know, Jesus said, in effect, no, I cannot, I will not come down. For then nobody will be saved. And today, the enemy has been defeated. So we can live without fear in the fullness of Christ. Do you see what was happening on the cross? The Lord Jesus was not proud. The grandiosity of Jesus was diminished to the point of death so that our healing at the cross could begin so that we could know new life. Is it possible that we have lost sight of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross? In our disappointment with the church, with other Christians, in our battering that we have received under the relentless assault of the enemy, is it possible that we have lost sight of what Jesus did at the cross, that he became poor, that we might become rich? Is it possible also uh, this morning that we have not a small part of grandiosity? Then as we come to receive the bread and wine, come, come with empty hands and pray one of these arrow prayers. Help me, Lord. Keep me, Lord. Sustain me, Lord. Forgive me, Lord. I need you, Lord. I love you, Lord. I surrender to you. Strengthen my hands, Lord. Nehemiah faced unrelenting opposition. Maybe that's how you feel this morning. And there are lessons here for us in this spiritual battle that we need one another. We need the church. And we need Christ church forward to be utterly Christ-centered. We need a safe refuge in this battle. And we also need people of prayer. May the Lord Hear our prayers over these next couple of weeks and show his grace and kindness to us. Amen.